So have you ever noticed how, based on the situation that you're in, uh, the way that you communicate with people changes? Anybody think that's true? Yes, that's true, right? If not, you're a crazy person, right? Like if it's just never, it's, just, it's always on the 10, right? Uh, but like, like theoretically, right? Like if, when you're a parent and you have a young child and you want to teach them about the danger of the stove, for example, uh, theoretically, you'd say, hey, so-and-so, you want to be really careful when that stove is on that when it turns on, it gets really hot and you could burn your finger. And that would hurt really bad if you burned your finger. And this is what would happen to your finger if it burned. It would hurt for a couple days. You'd get like a blister on there. You'd you know, cry a lot. We'd have to put a Band-Aid on that. It would be a whole deal, right? And you could talk that way to the individual or the child that you're speaking to. But as uh, that kid is in the kitchen next to you and the stove is on, and maybe they're five or six feet away from it, but you see them starting to walk towards it, your language would change, right? It's not theoretical anymore. The stove is on, it's hot. And so you might say, the stove is hot right now. Do not get close to it and don't touch it, right? You wouldn't go into all the other explanations. You'd be very direct, maybe a little bit more intense in your language. And if the kid's hand was right here, close to the stove, you might say, stop it, <laughs> right? <laughs> Do not touch. You might run over and just, instead of talking, actually grab the kid and pull them away from the stove because you don't want them to get burned. It's no longer in theory or no longer a possibility. It is about to take place. And so sometimes, I don't know about you, uh, but I read the Apostle Paul and I'm like, wow, Paul was intense. I'm not sure he'd be a great hang, you know? Like, <laughs> I don't know. Like, he's just so direct. Sometimes you're like, geez, like, just give me a break, you know? Like, I know I have problems, but, you know? And he's a lot of times just like, stop doing these things. Turn your life around. Believe in the gospel. And you're just like, all right, you know? But if you, so if you need a pep talk, Paul's a good person to go to. If you need someone to counsel you, Paul might be an okay person <laughs> in the right mood, right? But the reality is, is, is I think we need to understand the state of Paul's situation in order to understand how he communicates, in order to know how he um, is speaking to his hearers and the church goers that he is communicating to in the different letters that he writes. So if you, if you think about it, Paul uh, was constantly in danger. We know from the New Testament that he had been shipwrecked. He'd had rocks thrown at him to kill him. He had been beaten. He'd been thrown into prison. He'd had uh, times where he didn't have food. Uh, not only that, but that following Jesus had cost him a great deal. He was on his way to being a Pharisee and was well-respected and had dual citizenship as a, a Roman citizen and a, and a, a Jewish person. Uh, he had uh, most likely affluence. He may have been married with a family. All sorts of things could have been in Paul's life. And the reality is when he followed Jesus, he pretty much lost most of those things. And so I think we can kind of understand that Paul doesn't approach us with kid gloves. It's not just theoretical to him, right? This is his life. This is a life and death situation for him. And so when he comes to a passage like this and there's a possibility of these people coming into this church at Philippi and, and, and essentially changing the gospel slightly, adding to it, 
misconstruing it and causing all kinds of confusion for his church, he's not going to have it. He just says, forget it. I'm not going to allow you to be fooled by these people who are taking the true gospel and adding to it. And so no one had actually, in my opinion, come to the church at Philippi yet. <laughs> no no. Uh, people that have been, had, had just these Judaizers have been going from church to church that Paul had started, and they're going to go to Philippi next. And so Paul writes them, and he gives them a warning. And he says, watch out for those dogs. That was usually a term used by Jewish people for Gentiles. And Paul is now using it to a Gentile church to Jewish people. <laughs> He'd flip the script. You are the mutilators of the flesh. When he's speaking about circumcision there. See, the, what, what the Judaizers' agenda was is they were Jewish Christians who was, they, they were trying to make Gentile believers Jewish. Essentially, to get them to be circumcised, to observe the Sabbath, to keep kosher, and to sort of keep the whole, not sort of, to keep the whole Mosaic covenant, all 613 commandments. And Paul was saying that that isn't how it has to be. In fact, that is pulling away from the central focus, which is Christ's death and resurrection. You're downplaying the most important part and saying that this, in order to be a Christian, you got to do all of these other things. And so my question when I read this text was, why would these, these Gentile people be tempted to follow the Judaizers and become Jewish. Doesn't that seem like an odd thing? Like, why would they even, like, well, Paul told us we didn't have to do that, so why would we listen to you? It seems like a, a very limited temptation. I think there's probably at least like three reasons why they might be tempted to do this. Things that we wouldn't probably even think of in the context that we live in, where there are many people that are Christian and Christianity is an established religion. But these Christians, these Gentiles, they've already come to Christ and they've already been suffering difficulties. In fact, they can no longer participate in some of the things that they could do before in their culture, in their context. So they couldn't participate in the civic arena in Philippi. They no longer could worship in pagan temples. They no longer could participate in pagan festivals. No longer, uh, they, they, could, they could no longer show loyalty to Caesar by participating in his worship and in the imperial cult. And so you may say, that, well, that doesn't seem like that big of a deal, but this was very central to their identity. Does that make sense? All the things that they had known and done were now being shifted away and changing for them because they can no longer participate in idol worship and these festivals to other gods. Their allegiance is no longer to Caesar, but to Christ. And so they would have felt religiously adrift. And Judaism was an established, recognized, legitimate religion. And so participating in the ways that the Judaizers would have encouraged them to participate would have given them some sense of identity back. They wouldn't have to offer, they would have reasons why they could not offer sacrifices to the emperor that other people would accept. They no longer would have to pay those temple taxes in the same way that they had to do before. Instead, they could give sacrifices 
and offer sacrifices to the temple where the Jewish people did it. But the Christians, they were part of this superstition. <laughs> Almost like we would consider a cult at the time. They had no religious status. And so the Gentile Christians where everybody was somewhat religious, there really weren't people that were atheists in the first century, would have been, I don't know, lured towards this idea of an, an honored and uh, a, a religion that had some legitimacy of that time. The rites and the customs. And they didn't require that these Gentile Christians renounced Jesus or his death and his resurrection. They were just talking about supplementing, right? Just do this too. This is what it really truly means to be fully Christian. The Christians didn't have the rituals, the festivals, the sacrifices, the priests, the temples. They met in homes. So you can imagine in a very religious context and culture with rites and celebrations and festivals and sacrifices that this would have given more legitimacy to what they believed. And so there was a real temptation to become Jewish in order to be fully Christian, as these Judaizers would have been pushing. Well, Paul, as when Fred read the passage, would have none of that. <laughs> and he almost, uh, I don't know, he like starts trash talking in first century lingo, <laughs> the, the, these Judaizers. I don't know if any of you played sports. I don't know if that happens at like, like quiz bowl and stuff, but in sports sometimes, you know, people... They, they, they yell at you and they kind of talk down to you. And uh, I remember at one point playing basketball, I was not much of a trash talker. I couldn't think of things fast enough. Uh, that was more the reason. Or maybe I was always getting scored on. So it was, that, that was the other problem. But one guy said to me, I remember he goes, do you ever go to the mall? <laughs> and I was like, I lived in a very small town. And I was like, no, I do not. I do not go to the mall. And he says, well, you better not. And uh, I thought, oh, that's, that's kind of bad trash talk. I'm not even going to the mall. I just told you I'm not going there. You know? <laughs> I don't know. But Paul, Paul was better. He called them dogs. He called them mutilators of the flesh. And then he starts kind of boasting about the things that he could boast about if he really wanted to, to boast about those things, Right? He starts saying, listen, you think you guys have this all figured out. Listen to my rap sheet. Listen to like who I am and what I could boast in if I really wanted to. And he starts saying in verse four, though I myself have reasons for such confidence, I don't think you should put any confidence in the flesh, but I myself have reasons for such confidence. If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness, based on the law, faultless. I mean, these are significant claims. Paul's essentially saying five core things about himself. Number one, I have the right family heritage. I was circumcised on the eighth day, the exact day you're supposed to be circumcised. My family, that shows that his family was devout and true to Jewish faith. I'm from the people of Israel, from the tribe of Benjamin. 
The tribe of Benjamin had uh, significant, uh, significance above all the, all the other tribes in many ways. A Hebrew of Hebrews essentially is just saying a person who speaks Hebrew and comes from a family where it was spoken, and many people at that time wouldn't have been able to speak Hebrew. So that was a significant thing. Second thing he talks about, family heritage, is like, I come from, or so first thing is family heritage, I come from a long line of Jewish, devout Jewish believers. Second is his status. I said this before, the tribe of Benjamin. In Judges, this included the land surrounding Jerusalem. This is a prestigious tribe, a place to be a part of. The third thing he kind of alludes to is this idea of being a Pharisee, which I've tried to tell you over and over again, the Pharisees were revered, not despised, okay? Most likely, Paul had much of the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures, completely memorized. I mean, this guy, you talk about knowing your Bible. He, know, he knew it better than anybody in this room tenfold. So a measure of somebody that is devout in their faith, of someone that cares about their, uh, what's right and good and true is their knowledge of the Holy Scriptures or whatever that religion is, right? And so he's saying, if you want to talk about Scripture knowledge, <laughs> I meditated on it day and night. So family heritage, status, scriptural knowledge. Religious activity is another one. I mean... It's not like it's kind of weird for Paul to be like, yeah, I persecuted Christians, like I'm a, like as like a, a a marker for himself. But what he's trying to show is, look at how much I cared. I was willing to travel all around the region to root out what I saw as uh, something false coming up in the Jewish faith. I was not a nominal believer. I was not just showing up to, to the synagogue once in a while. This was my whole life. And the fifth thing he talks about is morality, right? As for righteousness based on the law, faultness. As of the 613 laws, you couldn't find a fault. He's not saying that he's perfect. This is not what he's trying to say. He's just saying if you probed into his life, there aren't inconsistencies with what the law demanded. I'm faultless. He goes on in verse seven. He says, but whatever were gains to me, whatever accomplishments I had, whatever I could say, look at, look at what I could, I could boast about in the flesh. I now consider a loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. A righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death and so somehow attaining the resurrection from the dead. I think what we can take away from Paul's list and then saying that all those things are losses, uh, uh, the things that he's listing him, his family heritage, his status, his scriptural knowledge, his religious activity, his morality, wouldn't we all agree that those things are good? Like these are not, these are not like 
bad things. But these good things, if thrust into life with Christ and sort of put on evil plane and level playing field, become toxic to the faith. It's possible, Paul's saying, to be a moral person and still devalue Christ. It's possible to be genuine and zealous in faith in something still wrong because you miss Christ. This isn't really the point of this passage, but you could say, if you miss Christ, like you've, you've missed it all, right? You can, you can be very devout in whatever you believe in, but you can still be wrong even though you're devout and genuine. Amen? <laughs> it's not just this idea that you can believe whatever you believe in as long as you're sincere, I think is what Paul's saying in some ways here. Sincerity is not the test for whether it's right or true. Sincerity is important in what you believe in, but it's not the test for what's right and true. You can miss Christ and be zealous and genuine as he was in his faith previously, and he would have missed the Messiah. He would have missed the King. It's possible to grow up in a Christian family and still undervalue Christ. It's possible to know a ton of the scriptures and even memorize much of the Bible and decenter Christ in your life. It's possible to follow all the Christian traditions, go to church, be part of a, a community of Jesus, and belittle Jesus. And we face those same temptations today. This is really for Christians. This passage is really for Christians. And though ours is not to probably become Jewish, I don't know of many Jewish converts. It's not out of the question, but, but the question is, is, the problem is still there. The temptation today for, for many Christians is to focus on, I don't know, I just said, put a few P's down. Pollux, politics, and power. <laughs> so Paul is not saying that Judaism was worthless. It's not that that way life has zero value, but what he is describing is this consuming desire to know Christ, to be in Christ. That's so important that it makes everything else look like completely unimportant. Looks like garbage. So all the stuff that he had focused on his whole life on before in comparison to following Jesus means in comparison. Doesn't mean nothing, it just in comparison to Christ looks like it means nothing. Paul is saying that Christ surpasses everything of worth to me. All that stuff, it's garbage compared to knowing Christ. He says, I want Jesus. I want his righteousness. I want the power of the resurrection. I want to share in his sufferings. I want to be like Jesus in my life. I want to experience what Jesus experienced all the way even to my death. Paul had discovered that Jesus is this treasure chest of joy. That nothing was compared to Christ. 
I just think that the way Paul talks about his faith here is so, and the reason I picked this passage is because I think it is so different than what's being practiced in so many places all around our city and our country and our world this morning. I think that there are so many people who are showing up to church this morning with their families, putting value on the things that they could boast in instead of wanting to know Christ. Instead of putting their total value on the person of Jesus. Our activity and our heritage can mask our true spiritual condition. And the question I want to ask those of you that would call yourself a Christian today And I don't want to hear, well, I grew up as a Christian, or I serve in the church, or I have this leadership position. But the question is, do we know Christ the way Paul is speaking about in this passage? One of my favorite little tiny stories in the Gospels is uh, when Jesus talks about the kingdom of God and how he says, it's like a man who found treasure in the field. You remember that one? The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure in a field. And when a man found it, he hid the treasure again, and he went and sold everything he had to go buy that field. And I think that's what Paul did, (laughs) right? Everything that he had of value, everything that mattered to him, everything that he held dear, everything that he could boast in in his life, When he found the treasure that is Christ, he said, I'm leaving all that behind in order to go buy that field, in order to go find that treasure. The infinitely wonderful, beautiful Christ. Paul is now in Christ. He is now in union with Christ. So this is not just him. I think that we read this passage and when he says, I want to know Christ, like, I think we think about that as like, he wants to know more about Jesus. And I think that that's true. That's a good thing, right? We should want to understand more about Jesus because that shows us more uh, who we're worshiping and who we're following and how to live our lives. But I think there's something deeper here. He's talking about being in Christ. And there's this term that's a theological term. Uh, it's called union with Christ. And the actual term is not in the Bible, union with Christ, but this term in Christ and other terms like it are in it throughout the New Testament. And there's this idea that when we follow Christ, when we give our lives to Christ, when we get our allegiance to Christ, at our moment of salvation, we are united with Christ. Does that make sense? And so in like a covenantal sense, Christ's obedience, all that Jesus did for us is given to us as believers because we're united with him. So if you know some sort of theology, the, the theology of Christians is this, is that in Adam, right, we all sinned. We all died. In Christ, right, we all have been made pure. We all have been made righteous. And there's this idea that, that Christ has given us his righteousness. He's given us his works. And so now we don't boast in our own stuff. We boast in Christ. And this is sense that, that this is like bodily sense that Christ became incarnate and thus become one with humanity. 
And it's that union in Christ that Christians depend on for their sustenance and for their power and for their life. It sounds almost like too much for us to kind of comprehend. It almost seems a little bit weird, but the Bible really speaks about this union with Christ is that we're joined both spiritually and bodily with Christ. So like when to be crucified, resurrected in Christ, does that make sense? It's just, Protestants don't talk about this a lot, union with Christ sometimes. They just talk about, you know, trusting in Jesus and praying a prayer and all these, you know, and, and you accept Jesus into your heart. With accepting Jesus in your heart, I think would be better to say, like, you are united with Christ. Like, instead of Jesus coming to live inside you and your little, like, soul somewhere, it's like you have gone to be united with him, right? You are part of Christ now. Spiritually and bodily, you have been crucified and raised to life. That's what we see in baptism, right? This image of death to life, of what's already taken place in our very body and spirit. And so everything else, like justification, sanctification, adoption, all those things that everybody talks about, how we are, when we become a Christian, we're justified and we're sanctified and we're adopted into the family. Those are all benefits of our union with Christ, our union with Jesus. We are engrafted into his body. Christ becomes ours and we become Christ. And so Paul, isn't it interesting that that's true of him? And then, it's, I don't know if, if many of you are familiar with what happens in Philippians 2, but in Philippians 2, Paul writes this amazing like theological, and I don't, it might have been already written, but he, he took it and, and put it in his uh, second chapter of Philippians, or he made it up, but it talks about how Christ who being you know, equal with God, right, took on the flesh. He gave up the riches of heaven so that he could essentially die for our sake and live so that we might live. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on the cross, it says. So therefore God exalted him to the highest place, right? He resurrected him and gave him the name above every name, that every knee shall bow and every tongue confess to the glory of God the Father. So Paul, if you notice in this passage, is kind of stating things similar to what he said in Philippians 2. He wants to know Christ, right? He says he wants to know Christ in the power of the resurrection. And, the particip- and I want to participate in his sufferings. <laughs> Becoming like him in his death. And so somehow attaining the resurrection of the dead. And essentially saying, now that I'm united with Christ that I know Christ, that I've given my allegiance to Christ, that now I boast in Christ's righteousness instead of my own. I want to live my life in imitation of Christ to the point of experiencing myself his very death and resurrection. How many people are praying that they can experience the sufferings of Christ? <laughs> Pray, praise God for you. I'm praying like, God, please take away that you know, bug bite I had last night. Paul's like, give me, more, give me more. What an honor it would be to die for the sake of Christ. And so I think Paul is, maybe we're not like about ready to touch the stove, but we're on our way, some of us, to just kind of this cultural Christianity. Just kind of like, 
yeah, I've been a Christian for a long time. It's pretty good. I'm not going to like tell others about Jesus, but Jesus is good for me. You know, it's going to be, it's good. It's like here, but I got my other parts of my life. You know what I mean? Like it's just, I think Paul is just kind of like saying, okay, just like, hey, very directly, very directly. The heritage and the status and the knowledge and all those things are great that you've done. But do you really know Christ? And do you want to be found in him? And if you're not a Christian here this morning, this message really was for, for Christians. But I would just say this uh, to you. I don't know what you've heard, what the Christian faith actually is. Uh, you may have heard it as hundreds and hundreds of rules, <laughs> 613 rules, like uh, they were trying to impose on the Gentiles, the Judaizers. But it really is primarily about being united with Christ. And so the question for you this morning is the same. Do you want Christ? Do you want his righteousness that he provides through his death and resurrection on the cross? And if so, then you will be united with him, forgiven of your sins, and raised to life in Christ.